This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. You're listening to Coast to Coast, the top-rated legal radio show on the web. I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. I write the blog's law sites and also the blog Media Law. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court here in Southern California. Uh, Bob, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, Craig, back in 2004, digital video recording pioneer TiVo sued satellite giant Echostar for patent infringement. And TiVo alleged Echostar violated its time warp technology patent. This technology enables the TiVo digital video recorder to record one program while playing back another. But the patent infringement lawsuit uh, took a big detour. TiVo versus Echostar forced a federal circuit court to make a decision about a pretty murky area of the law. What is the limit of attorney-client privilege when there's a dispute over privileged work product immunity? Well, it's a complicated case that takes time to explain, so let's bring in one of our guests right now. Attorney Blair Jacobs is a partner at Sutherland Asbill and Brennan LLP in Washington, D.C. He's got extensive trial experience in federal court and has specific experience trying patent infringement issues to juries, and he's been following this case very closely. Welcome to the show, Blair. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Blair, how did the uh, how did this issue of attorney-client privilege and work product privilege uh, emerge in the TiVo patent infringement case? Well, it emerged in the same manner that it emerges in essentially every patent infringement case. And actually, we're seeing these issues emerge from different angles now because we have a lot of antitrust counterclaims that we see in patent cases. But what happens in a patent case such as the Echostar case is that you assert when you file your claim of patent infringement typically a claim of willful infringement as well. And the importance of a willful willfulness allegation is that it can triple the damages ultimately that a jury returns. It also can lead to claims of attorney's fees and things of that nature. The only way to defend against a claim of willfulness is to demonstrate uh, as a defendant that you have reasonably relied on the advice of counsel, and by injecting the advice of counsel into a case, you then, of course, create questions with regard to what that advice of counsel was. And so that's that's how the issue came to light, and it, it, it is an issue that it really does lead to a lot of discovery disputes in our patent cases. So it's not enough to just simply say that you consulted with counsel. You actually have to prove what it was you were advised by counsel. That's right, and it goes back to an early 1900s case, and this law has been developed in a lot of different states, but but California has seen a heck of a lot of development in the area, and it's the sword and shield doctrine, as it's become to known. You can't use something such as the advice of counsel as a sword or as a shield and a sword at the same time. So if you're going to use it as a shield to insulate yourself from this charge of willfulness, 
you have to allow the other side to probe. And the court struggled, in all honesty. The district court struggled for the last 15, 20 years with regard to how much probing would be allowed. And we had a great disparity of opinions coming out, sometimes allowing nothing, essentially, and sometimes opening up attorneys' files you know, completely and allowing all of their work product and uh, attorney-client communications to be probed. Is there a difference between whether it's inside counsel or outside counsel? Well, well, there is, and that was discussed in the Federal Circuit's ruling in the Echo Star case. Uh, you can have inside counsel render an opinion of counsel. However, courts have said time and again that that may not carry as much weight because of the credibility issues that one already inside of a company may have in rendering an opinion that the company does not infringe a patent or that the patent is invalid. Uh, just about every company believes when they receive a cease and desist letter or a warning uh, about infringing somebody's patent that uh, immediately that uh, the patent is not infringed by their company or invalid. So the, the courts require something more than that, and, and typically they require a competent opinion of counsel, and then they require some type of consideration of that. And this is where we get into the state of mind of the alleged infringer, in this case, Equestar. And that's where the courts have struggled. How do we – because ultimately we have to determine, did they reasonably rely on this competent opinion of counsel? And so courts have really struggled with how far, you know, how far we go. So there was confusion in this case. I mean, how did it sort out? There was confusion as to what opinion Echostar actually received and uh, what, what, which opinions it relied on. Isn't that right? Exactly, because they had they had in-house opinions, and they were taking the view that they were relying on their in-house opinions. And then later, because one of the issues that's always probed in patent cases as well is how soon after receiving your cease and desist or warning letter to stop infringing did you obtain a opinion of counsel that you could rely upon. Again, all of these facts, the totality of the circumstances are considered in determining whether somebody has willfully infringed another's patent. Uh, here there was an outside opinion that was uh, later obtained, and there was inside opinions. They're really not treated uh, differently, typically, but you do have, as you can imagine, different attorney-client relationships. You have different types of communication when you have outside counsel involved. And then the issue of work product becomes very important because the outside counsel is going to be generating a lot of work product often that may or may not be communicated to the client. And that kind of became the core issue, not only in the Echostar case, which I think the court did a nice job with, but in all of our cases, because an attorney does not want to disclose his or her own work product, his law firm's work product on an issue, that because it can talk about trial strategy or things of that nature. Very important to the defense of a case. So what happened to this outside opinion? Uh, I guess there was a decision not to use it? There was a decision not to use it, which of course raises the inference that it was not a favorable uh, opinion. 
And if you decide not to use an opinion, we've had to litigate this issue a number of times in, in different courts around the country. More often than not, you do not have to disclose because you're not using it to your benefit. So more often than not, you don't have to disclose if you – state we're not going to rely upon this opinion. It's the reliance on something that then creates the issue of, all right, now the plaintiff, the party who's accusing you of willfully infringing, should be fairly entitled to examine what it is you're relying but upon. In this instance, I guess that uh, Echo or TiVo found out about the Echo Star outside opinion and wanted to see it. Yes, yes, they did, and that is a very, very sticky issue that you know becomes quite difficult in determining how far you're going to go on that issue and whether you're going to be able to to actually gain access to those opinions or not. And that's an issue that the Federal Circuit didn't address directly here, and I think that it's still fact-determinative on a case-by-case basis as to whether you're going to get access to uh, opinions that aren't ultimately relied upon in any way. Um, We had that issue come up in California in Northern District not too long ago, and the court uh, ultimately concluded that if you could could put in a declaration that you weren't going to use or rely upon an opinion, uh, that the other side couldn't gain access to, to it or the facts around. It. Well, did the court, did the federal circuit set up guidelines at all with respect to this issue? Did it clarify the issue at all? I think that they set up good, good guidelines that are very helpful when you consider the confusion that was out there at the district court level. Essentially, if an opinion is relied upon and it relates to attorney-client privilege, that attorney-client privilege is going to be waived, and you're going to be able to look at the documents. You're going to be able to look at this information. You're going to be able to ask questions about that. Work product is where there was a bit of a split, and, and essentially what they came down and said here was if that work product is communicated to the client, then it is fair game. You're going to be able to examine it. If you're going to waive with regard to that because it weighs in with regard to the infringer's state of mind. However, work product that you create as a law firm or as an attorney giving advice that you never provide to the client will not be waived. It creates some type of a question with regard to, well, what about work product that is created and maybe is orally communicated, but it doesn't show up on a document that the guidance or advice was orally communicated. How do you probe this? How do you look at a privilege log to determine, hey, that's a document that we should be entitled to? Uh, And I can see some games that might be played with regard to this uncommunicated work product going forward. But once an attorney communicates to a client, even if it was work product at some point, doesn't it automatically transmute into attorney-client? It does, but I guess the point that I was getting at is oftentimes you'll have a memo, and the memo won't indicate on its face that the subject matter of the memo was communicated to the client, and it may show up on a privilege log, you know, uh, advice relating to opinion uh, created in-house, and and because it doesn't have somebody in-house in the two-line or in the CC line, it'll be on the privilege log, and there's a question with regard to, well, was the subject matter of that document ever communicated to somebody in-house? Because if it was, the Federal Circuit clarified in the Henry Echo Star case, 
it, it is then obtainable. It should be produced. You waive with regard to that subject matter. What effect does this opinion have on chilling the relationship between an attorney and a client that's getting this kind of a, an opinion in these types of cases? I think that there will be a chilling effect, and the Federal Circuit discussed the competing interests, the interest between allowing somebody to fairly look at the advice so you can see whether this reliance is reasonable and the policy behind protecting attorney-client communications and work product. Instead, what this does, I think, a little bit is it shifts the burden to a good defense counsel and to opinion counsel in these patent cases, or in any case where you're relying upon the advice of counsel as part of your defense, to really uh, control very carefully the types of materials that are being created and what you're putting forth with regard to your opinion of counsel. I think that you have to have an expectation that just about anything uh, is going to be discoverable now. What about for plaintiff's counsel in these cases? Does it change the way uh, they're going to approach patent litigation? Well, this is a big, big issue, as I mentioned earlier, for plaintiff's counsel in patent litigation. So does it change the way plaintiff's counsel are going to address? Let me let me just tell you what we're doing uh, in cases where I'm representing plaintiffs. We are certainly turning up the heat because of this opinion on the defendants to make sure that they are not hiding things on their privilege log that under this Echo Star opinion should be coming to us that, that has been. So, so in other words, oftentimes parties will say, okay, we'll waive and we're going to waive attorney-client privilege or work product with regard to this very select area that we're relying upon. And then you start looking at their privilege log and you start seeing a lot of documents that may relate to that area. And I think it's fair now to ask questions, given the guidance provided in this opinion of, all right, now you say here that you're this is protected and you're not going to produce it, but it relates to invalidity and you have an invalidity opinion. Let's talk about whether we ought to be entitled to that document or information in that document or not. And so I think you're spending more time on this now because there's nothing better than finding a real good document or a smoking gun that you can put up to the jury that shows that an opinion was weak or that somebody knew they were infringing and continued to infringe. Uh, once that gets into a jury's mind at trial, all of the technical nuances of proof infringement, in my mind, becomes secondary. And you have something that not only helps you with your infringement case, but can eventually lead to uh, up to trebling of the damages. This reminds me of the situation between uh, IPOs and bonding counsel that uh, used to get opinions that said that the about the bonds and the validity of the bonds, and it, and it kind of backfired from the long run that uh, those opinions are not sought out anymore. Is I, I, I think that you're right, and that issue was addressed a while back by the Federal Circuit in the Norbram's opinion, where there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion in the patent bar with regard to whether these opinions should even be obtained any longer. And the Norbram's opinion made it clear that you had to have a competent opinion of counsel. You had to rely on this to defeat a claim of willfulness. It's interesting in patent cases how this being is being turned. I think against plaintiffs' counsel is that when you have two big companies squaring off, like TiVo and Ecostar, for example, you very often now see as part of a defense a counterclaim of an antitrust 
uh, and unfair competition. And part of proving an antitrust counterclaim in a patent case is proving that the filing was objectively baseless. So how do you prove that the filing was objectively baseless? Well, you have to prove that the attorney who filed the case and the firm that filed the case did so knowing, with along with the company that filed it, that it was objectively baseless. Well, what does that do? That puts a burden on the plaintiff, on the plaintiff's firm, and on the plaintiff, the filer of the suit, to demonstrate that it was not objectively baseless. How do they do that? They show that they had advice of counsel, that they had infringement charts and things of this nature. So, you know, what comes around goes around, right? Yeah. Isn't there any type of uh, other defense to a willfulness claim other than advice of counsel? Any type of advice of counsel, whether it's oral, written, or whatever, is permissible. The, the, the simple explanation of that is the only defense is that you have uh, competent counsel providing opinion that was reasonably relied upon by the defendant within a reasonable period of time after receiving notice that they were alleged to be infringing somebody else's rights. So you have to have an opinion of some type. And courts nowadays even set dates for disclosure of these opinions in the case and for discovery related to these issues. So courts are courts are separating that out, recognizing that this is an important issue. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we're going to be joined by a lawyer who's directly involved in the uh, TiVo EchoStar case. Uh, Coast to Coast will be back in 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And this is Craig Williams. Thanks for keeping it tuned to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. We are uh, 
joining back in our discussion with the TiVo EchoStar case. We're joined by attorney Christine Boyd. Christine is a litigation partner with Irel and Manila in Los Angeles. Ms. Bird is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers and specializes in complex business litigation. And she was one of the counsel for TiVo at trial and also in the federal court in the TiVo versus EchoStar case. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We just want to make note of the fact that we had also invited a, a lawyer from Echo Star's uh, team of attorneys to participate in the show and, and, and present a more balanced view of the case, uh, but uh, they withdrew as of yesterday from the program. And Christine, we know that you're limited in what you can say about the case, uh, but I wonder if you could tell us why this case uh, became a, a, a work product privilege case from your perspective. Uh well, a lot of it has to do with the comments that Blair made earlier that uh, in patent cases, um, uh, the defense is often raised, the defense to willful infringement is often that the company had a, and relied on an opinion of counsel. So and in this case, TiVo did charge willful infringement, and EchoStar did claim that it had an uh, opinion of counsel. Um, and uh, so the, the issue was joined there. Uh, and the question that triggered everything was that uh, Echo Star had had a review by an in-house attorney and uh, initially claimed that uh, the uh, disclosure should be limited to the in-house review and that it shouldn't extend to any opinions that it had from outside counsel. Uh, and so that was a dispute between the parties. And this new decision from the Federal Circuit uh, said clearly that uh, when you had the uh, first had the advice of the in-house counsel that that also waived the attorney-client privilege with regard to any attorney-client communications with counsel other than in-house counsel, which included in this case the, the outside attorneys. Christine, is this, is this uh, question really different than any other advice of counsel defense? Because typically uh, it does waive the attorney-client privilege. I guess this is different from the standpoint that it now extends into work product? Uh, well, the, this area of patent litigation has for a long time extended into work products, so this case doesn't change the law significantly in that respect. But the old work product doctrine has really changed dramatically since it uh, was first accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. It was back in uh, the 1940s in a very famous case called Hickman versus Taylor. It was really a very sad case. Uh, it involved a tugboat that sank, and uh, five crew members were drowned, and the owners of the tugboat realized that they were going to get sued, and they had their attorney do an investigation. They also prepared to sue the, a railroad company whose cargo they had been towing. And so then after uh, litigation ensued, the question was whether the attorney's uh, investigation had to be turned over to the uh, uh, the, the family members of the crewmen who had drowned. So this was really clearly uh, work product in connection with litigation. But where we've gone with the uh, uh, the willfulness area in patent cases is that we're talking about uh, opinion counsel, counsel who uh, were engaged to give an opinion and not uh, counsel who were engaged to prepare for trial. And, and the work product doctrine and the work product immunity being extended into this area uh, has created a struggle in the courts because the uh, 
the, the policy reasons behind the work product immunity when you're talking about trial counsel doesn't necessarily fit in this situation. Uh, remember that this is a situation where the client has actually waived that privilege with respect to the opinion itself and the communications with respect to the opinion. So the only thing that's left is the, uh, the attorney's work product. Uh, and uh, the question is, to what extent should, uh, should that go along with and be, should the attorneys be allowed to look into it in order to gauge the, the strength and the reasonableness of the opinion that resulted from it? So does does that extend outside the patent field then? Does does this case have implications outside the outside of patent litigation? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that. I think it's a very interesting question. The uh, the area that I think uh, may actually be somewhat similar is actually in the criminal area, where uh, defendants may be charged with white collar crimes such as uh, tax fraud or. Um, uh, uh, real estate scams or whatever. And in those cases, uh, defendants do frequently claim that they relied upon advice of counsel, that they thought that the financial setup uh, was, in fact, legal. And uh, so it would be interesting to see if anything from the patent area is uh, transported over into the criminal area or vice versa. Wouldn't it also have some level of an application in, say, a sexual harassment lawsuit when attorneys are retained by companies to go out and conduct investigations into the allegations? Uh, the question of the investigation is uh, pretty well settled in the law when you're talking about something that's clearly in anticipation of litigation. Obviously, there are always fact patterns that change with each case. What's interesting about this patent case, uh, the, this patent infringement area, is that we're talking about a straight opinion of counsel, which uh, does not necessarily say I'm preparing for trial. And to some extent, uh, it is indeed the opposite, that you're seeking uh, an objective opinion of counsel to determine where you stand and to try to determine what actions you should and should not take in order to respond to the, the, uh, the patent issues that you have identified. That's very different from uh, trial counsel and trial strategy. Doesn't this issue of getting an opinion arise, though, after you receive a cease and desist letter? So isn't it automatically in anticipation of litigation? You, you, the, actually, the uh, responsibility of investigating uh, can occur and does occur long before you get any kind of notification from the other side. Uh, so, for example, in this case, there had been a press conference that... Uh, uh, to the world, and people knew about the TiVo patent. It was it was very exciting back in 2001, and it was all over the press. And that was enough then to uh, uh, put uh, the other side on notice, and they did, in fact, start uh, looking into it. Christine, I know you're limited in what you can say, but I wonder if you could just step back from the work product issue and, and give us a, some perspective on where this uh, case stands. I know it's not over. Um, let's well, yes, the uh, the Federal Circuit's decision was just on a, a writ of mandamus, which is just an interim issue on the on the question of discovery that was posed. The case actually went to trial in April, uh, a couple of weeks at trial, and in the end, the jury did return a verdict. Uh, they did find that Echo Star had infringed the patent, all of the claims of the patent. They found that Echo Star had willfully infringed. And they uh, found that the patent was valid, 
and they uh, assessed $73.9 million in damages. Uh, the, the, the final judgment hasn't been entered. There are still some issues pending in front of the judge, including the question of an injunction and trouble damages. And there are proceedings also or, or, or uh, activity at the Patent and Trademark Office as well with respect to this case. Uh, there has been some activity there. Uh, some of it has been resolved. Uh, Echostar did seek a reexamination of the claims of the patent, and uh, uh, some of them have been reaffirmed. Some of them are still being looked at by the Patent Office. There's also further activity at the federal circuit level. <laughs> We're all very busy here. There has been a petition for rehearing. Uh, the, the circuit opinion on work product did attempt uh, very diligently to try to put some guidelines down for district courts to use. Um, but uh, one of the things that it did was it did uh, confuse this question of opinion counsel versus litigation counsel, and uh, it uh, also um, overlooked one of the particular protections that the district court judge had put in his order. So there's been a petition for rehearing to clarify these, these final points in the decision. So that's still ongoing. Well, Christine, uh we still have Blair Jacobs on the line with us, and so we'd like to kind of ask a wrap-up question here. What types of, what larger questions should uh, be taken, or larger lessons should be learned from this from the standpoint of trial attorneys and opinion attorneys? Well, I, I agree with Blair that the biggest thing is um, how do you as an attorney conduct your practice when you are uh, preparing uh, opinions for counsel under these circumstances. And I think the uh, clear lesson is that uh, the chit-chat between attorney and client on these issues is discoverable, and to the extent that you subsequently record the chit-chat in emails or whatever, that that is discoverable, and uh, that whatever attorneys uh, write down, they should make sure that it's nothing that they would be embarrassed to have revealed in court. Um, but that's probably a good rule for everything that we write down. And Blair, how about you? Let me, let me just uh, let me just amplify and, and agree with one point that Christine made that is very very important, and that is there is some question with regard to the difference between uh, guidance provided by opinion counsel and trial counsel. Now, sometimes in these cases, you have the same law firm that serves as opinion counsel and trial counsel. Under that scenario, given what the court said in Echostar, the waiver continues to run all the way as long as infringement is incurring, so it can occur all the way up to the date of trial. I'm actually seeing that in one of the cases that I'm working on right now. So this is going to cause, I think, defendants to think very, very seriously about whether they hire the same firm to render an opinion and then to also serve as litigation counsel or trial counsel because you run the risk of having waiver occur and then that waiver somehow permeating and getting into some of the work product that relates to the areas that you have received the opinion on. It's a very, very important issue to consider, and hopefully what they're going to do at the Federal Circuit will uh, address and clarify that issue a little bit. You know, there's one other thing that the Federal Circuit clarified that attorneys should be aware of, and that is that if uh, the client gets a number of opinions, say an in-house counsel and then uh, one law firm and then another law firm, that once they 
put that advice of counsel, that opinion of counsel in issue in the case, then all of those opinions have to be disclosed. It's, you know, I refer to it as the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can't just go out and pick the good opinion that you really like and disclose that. All of those opinions have to be uh, produced. And uh, there are times, I suppose, when some of those opinions uh, would fall into the bad or the ugly category. So that's something that attorneys should think about. Christine, we're going to wrap up today's show and uh, Blair as well. So if we could get from you our your contact information so our listeners could get in touch with you should they need further assistance on these subjects. Uh, yes, I'm with Irel and Manella in Los Angeles, California, and you can get all my contact information off the web at www.irell.com. Yes, and Blair Jacobs, you can get my information at www.sablaw.com. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bob and Craig. Well, Bob, that's going to wrap it up for today. Yep. Thank you very much to our guests. We really appreciate your time and participation. And, Craig, I look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.